You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 23rd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Are China's people losing patience with COVID lockdowns? In the absence of another referendum, does Scotland's independence movement have any other options? And what could a rekindling of the US-Philippines relationship mean in the South China Sea? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Isabel Hilton and Bill Hayton will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from the historian Jane Draycott about her new book chronicling the remarkable life of the daughter of Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Isabel Hilton, international journalist and visiting professor at King's College London's Lao Institute, and by Bill Hayton, associate fellow for the Asia-Pacific programme at Chatham House. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Uh, we will be hearing much more from you both shortly, but we will start in Ukraine. Several Ukrainian cities, including Kiev, Lviv and Odessa, have been partially blacked out by a fresh barrage of Russian missiles. The strikes also appear to have knocked out the electricity of of neighbouring Moldova. Well, I'm joined from Kiev by the TV journalist Maharita Varadovska. Um, Maharita, first of all, uh, it's obviously, well, middle of the evening in Kiev where you are. What is it like now? Hi, Andrew. So, Kiev in darkness, what to say? 80% of uh, Kiev is currently without electricity. In some places, there is no water and heat either. And Kiev just dark as usual, but today is just a bit worse. People stuck up on water and food. I don't think there is any panic in the city, to be honest. Nevertheless, the situation is pretty complicated. We are all trying to stick together. Um, we should emphasize for our listeners elsewhere in the world that winter comes to Kiev pretty early. Temperatures today, as I understand it, barely above freezing, and that's not likely to change for some months. Uh, what preparations has the city made for the potential of what could be quite a long, well, a, a sort of a siege, really? Kind of, honestly. Um, we have prepared generators that can provide some critical infrastructure facilities with um, electricity i mean like hospitals kindergarten schools so on we uh, have opened like 800 um, places around ukraine so you can go there and get um, electricity to charge your phone get mobile connection food some water and some heat so you can warm up a bit so actually this is pretty much what we have now but i must say that people have been preparing for this for many months already and uh, everyone has uh, power banks uh, touristic kits you know where you can get some gas from or and also um we have thermal clothes we have uh, we have prepared you know i don't think that that people are going to leave ukraine due to these circumstances because we better like fry eggs on on a candle then go somewhere <laughs> and uh, of course it's cold uh, it's it's freakingly cold you know and it's going to be cold as usual in ukraine now we have like minus two degrees and we're going to have like minus 10 minus 50 
uh, minus 15, sorry, <laughs> but um, I think I think uh, our government will do all the best to provide us with, with heat at least. I uh, mean, gas. You have partially answered this question already, but, but given the privations which may be about to be imposed on Kiev in particular, are people talking about leaving? I mean, or is the local government, the you know, Mayor Klitschko's municipality, even talk about trying to remove old, ill and vulnerable people from the capital? Uh, I'm sorry, I just have one technical thing. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you still hear us? Yes, yes, I can hear. So answering your question, uh, uh, Kiev government ha has talked about evacuating Ukraine, uh, not Ukraine, Kiev citizens, sorry. Uh, you must uh, have read those uh, things about evacuating 3 million Kiev citizens, right? Mm. But this is just, uh, just um, in the worst case. Uh, today we have uh, read uh, the interview to one media called Build, uh, where Klitschko, the mayor of city, said that maybe half of the city should be evacuated. But this, is, those are just talks. Now, no one is preparing now for that. And people, uh, I can tell you definitely, are not going to leave. But maybe um, they they will have no choice. I don't know. But I can tell you, even myself, I mean, I, I understand that probably that would be a good idea to go somewhere more safe. Uh, but it, it's strange. You don't want to leave your country during those circumstances. It feels like, you know, your mother is cold and you can get that cold, but you can't leave her. So I think people are just staying strong. Uh, well, again, you're doing quite well at partially answering my questions in advance, because I suppose one of the other considerations that Ukraine's national government has to make is that large numbers of people leaving the capital might be exactly what Russia wants. So is the feeling, as you understand it, that people are determined just to stay there in defiance of Russia? Mm, I think, I think people people become more angry with every Russian attack. And um, I, think, I think a lot of people are scared, but at the same time, um, something doesn't let you go. It's, it's very tough to explain. And, and uh, we, are, we are, of course, afraid also of um, the possible attack from Belarus that the whole world have been talking about for quite a long time, you must know. Yes, and that's that's pretty scary. But uh, at the same time, we we have strong preparations on our border, and we pretty much uh, wait for everyone who wants to come. Maharita Varadovska in Kiev, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Still with me are Isabel Hilton and Bill Hayton. Now, in China, public protest is unusual, and it can be safely surmised that public protest in China that anyone else ever hears about is rarer still. But things do appear to have kicked off substantially at the iPhone factory in Zhengzhou, the world's largest such facility. The cause of the ruckus seems to have been discontent with both the quantity and and the punctuality of wages. But there was another dust-up at the same site last month when some workers broke out, rather than submit to yet another COVID-19 lockdown. Um, Isabel, first of all, I will 
invite you, uh, if debunking is in order to debunk the assumption I made with that introduction, how unusual actually is some sort of reasonably large-scale public protest against the authorities? The last time the authorities themselves actually published figures, they admitted to 80,000 substantial events a year, and that's not counting smaller ones that they didn't bother to count. But that is a a good decade ago. They stopped publishing the figures Mm. after that. But what we're seeing with COVID is that, you know, we've seen, gosh, five or six um, episodes of unrest just in the last month. You remember in in Lhasa, the the migrant workers, in uh, there were uh, protests in in Guangzhou quite recently. Zhengzhou, as you said, that extraordinary sight of people climbing over a very high fence and leaving drag their suitcases along the motorway. So I think the discontent is, you know, that people are very, very much on edge. Beijing's about to lock down again, and uh, and COVID is spreading. Meanwhile, the labs that are supposed to be testing this, this, you know, very, very expensive mass testing that's gone on for nearly three years, they're not getting paid because the local authorities are running out of funds to pay them. So they're complaining. You know, there's the whole... It's unravelling in lots of different ways, this policy. I mean, Bill, I think we can probably go ahead and assume that nobody in China is enjoying the perpetuation of the COVID-19 regimes. But what do we know for sure about how widespread the discontent is? Well, I mean, the fact that the, um, the the Standing Committee of the Politburo came out with these new instructions last week, the week before, um, suggests, and, and you know, a lot, a lot of that stuff seemed, you know, fairly common sense. You know, let, let's try and control the pandemic and open the country as much as we can. Well, it's kind of well, what have you been doing for the last three years? It was was part of my thinking, but the part of it was about giving local authorities more flexibility, which suggests that there are, you know, there, there is discontent in many many places because of overzealous lockdowns in some places and and other restrictions, and more and more videos of people being threatened by police and and, and this kind of thing, and just leaking out and and getting circulation. Um, so I think we just assume that there is a, a lot of discontent, and and these, you know, these. I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen these, you know, slightly comic pictures of the students sort of walking, you know, kneeling round and going round and round in circles, just because life is so pointless under lockdown as a, as a kind of sort of absurdist protest. So uh, you know, you have the, the the workers in the factory at one end, and these sort of, I guess, better off students at the other end. But as this general ennui, and then a third factor, which is obviously far smaller than. The, from the Chinese population is the number of foreigners who are leaving China, just so fed up with the lockdown um, and, and, and just going. I mean, is, Isabel, it's a question we have contemplated uh, on these shows before, but as of right now, is it clear to you why China is being so unyielding about this? Because at this point, it does seem to, it, it can only be one of, one of two things, either that they just understand this pandemic vastly better than, let's see, the entire rest of the world at this point. Um, Or they've done that thing of digging themselves so deep into something they don't really know how to dig their way out of it. They have dug themselves very deep into a policy. It's it's closely associated with Xi Jinping. It was presented as a great success for two years. But but the reason that it's so hard to get out of, it, you know, how do you declare victory when your population is largely, it's just not vaccinated enough and it's vaccinated with relatively ineffective vaccines. And it's not vaccinated enough in part because they were so keen on, on saying, 
saying what a great success this policy was. So for two years, you know, there wasn't a lot of reason to get vaccinated. So so people didn't. Um, and, and there are, you know, the, the, the usual number of, of crazy rumors about vaccination, you know, circulate in China too. People were for a long time more afraid of the idea of vaccination than they were of COVID because there wasn't any. And so now you have an elderly population which is which were COVID, you know, once it begins to change with Omicron because it's mm. so much more contagious. To work over to get into the elderly population, the the provision in China of ICUs, of emergency facilities would very, very quickly be overwhelmed. And so local authorities who, you know, have had this instruction, as Bill says, maybe to lighten up a bit. They tried it in Shijiazhuang recently, um, but they're also torn between, okay, we'll lighten up, we'll, you know, reduce the quarantine, we'll sort of ease off a bit. But what if we get a real outbreak? Because then my career's over, you know, I, I could end up in jail. So they are caught as as people often are in China between two conflicting policy <laughs> imperatives. And so they opt for the safety. The safety is in lockdown. Um, Bill, is it possible, do you think, to get a read on how many Chinese people would understand that the rest of the world has long since stopped doing anything like this? I think that it is hard to tell. But I mean, the, the, the media during the pandemic, you know, when, when Britain and the US and other you know, countries were suffering, I mean, they were, the Chinese media was playing that up in contrast, of course, to the safety that the Chinese mm. population was enjoying at that time. Um, so, I mean, Isabel probably has a, has a, good, a good, good thought on this uh, in terms of how much information is getting through the, the Great Firewall. But I, I get the impression that, you know, that there are, that information does get through and that there is a contrast because it's not just, you know, uh, you know countries like Britain and and the US. I mean, you know, all of China's neighbours, you know, with the exception of North Korea, I guess, you know, have gone have gone beyond this now. And mm. So it, it's not just a sort of US v China situation. It, it remains true that the death rate in China has been very low, and mm. that, and you know, China can can default to that argument quite easily. Well, we have China's figures to go on there. Uh, yeah, but I think they're not. I mean, they may not be sort of you know down to the last detail, but they're roughly true. Because if there had been a big death rate, I think we would have known about mm. it. And it the contrast is amazing. I mean, it, China and it's Scotland tiny. have about the same death. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so that is that is sort of a victory. But, but they wouldn't. They haven't licensed, um, you know, the effective vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, and as long as they don't, they're they're stuck until they develop one of their own or whatever. But they're stuck. Um, the only bit of possibility was that I noticed about about a month ago they were talking about licensing a treatment rather than a vaccine. Mm that might make a difference but again it's a bit of a risk we might be experimenting with that sometime uh, bill just a final quick thought on this point to bring us back to where we came in with this protest at an iphone manufacturing plant if china starts to look more and more like yes by golly we are going to do this forever does there come a point at which the world's multinational manufacturers start looking for another workshop well yes and they already are in, in many places but you know china still has this reserve army of 300 million you know laborers that get moved around from factory to factory and there's nowhere else in the world that can match that so there are there are going to be pros and cons for these companies but i think apple is already warning that the production of the iphone 14 is going to suffer this year
Well, here in the UK, the Supreme Court has decided that the K must remain U for the moment at least. The country's senior-most beaks have ruled that Scotland's government cannot hold another referendum on Scottish independence without the consent of the UK government. Scotland did, of course, hold such a referendum in 2014, which was defeated, but Scotland's ruling Scottish National Party have since floated the idea that the fact of Brexit, heftily opposed by Scottish voters in that referendum, entitled them to another go. Um, Isabel, the, the court probably wasn't likely ever to decide anything else, uh, though I'm not a constitutional expert. Is it possible, however, that Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, despite what she would obviously admit in public, is possibly secretly rather relieved by this judgment? Well, it's always useful to be able to denounce the English. <laughs> um, I find this myself. Um, so, would you like to have a denounce while you're sitting just, here? Just a on, little one. On behalf of your people. Go on. Just a, a small denounce as a treat. Well, the union of the crowns was a union. <laughs> no, we can I mean, divorce if we want to. But I anyway. mean, I'm Australian. I'm not going to stop you. Um, so, so, I mean, given that of course any referendum is, is is uncertain, given that I, I, I actually can't remember if Nicola Sturgeon has denounced the um, Brexit referendum for failing to build in a two-thirds majority or anything large like that. She hasn't got a two-thirds majority uh, for independence. Well, if, if, if polls so, are to be believed, she doesn't have a fifty percent majority. No, uh, it's a it's a tricky thing. So I think that uh, to be spared having to have a referendum at the wrong moment by the actions of the English, I could see that could be handy. I mean, Bill, seriously though, is this really going anywhere or is there is there a certain amount of theatrics to uh, Nicola Sturgeon's indignation? Polling suggests that maybe there's 48% for independence if she's lucky uh, and obviously she would understand I mean if I figured it out, she's figured it out that if they called another referendum and that was lost, I mean that's it forever isn't it? Yeah, but I mean there were two games going on here. There's the referendum game and independence and there's also the party political game who controls the Scottish Parliament and, and all the mm. rest of it and so I mean the idea of this I mean it was clearly kind of you know legal chicanery it was going to be it wasn't going to be a real referendum it was going to be a consultative referendum and so therefore should that be okay and well, it wasn't so going to was, be now. so was the Brexit, <laughs> so was Brexit. referendum <laughs> yeah. 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 dream on yeah <laughs> and it was you know it's going to be this time next year approximately I think was the plan you know who knows where the economy is going to be I guess it's not going to be you know better than it is now you know kind of which way does that split does then everybody say oh you know insecurity let's, let's stick together while we can or does it go the other way and say well we couldn't manage the situation any worse than the, than the Westminster the government is doing now so you know as you say that you know the calculation was was, was wide open um but at least you know by having this uh, the, the Supreme Court's decision, well, it's another Westminster decision you can rail against. Because, Isabel, Sturgeon's case is that Brexit changes the calculus, and mm -hmm. I think many of our listeners will remember her uh, addressing, well, mostly Scotland, mm -hmm. but basically the entire world the morning after the Brexit vote from in front of a combination of both the Scottish and the EU flags, uh, Union flag nowhere to be seen. But the fact of Brexit complicates independence in itself, doesn't it? Because oh, in 2016, yeah. Scotland would have been voting to stay in the EU, uh, be an amicable, friendly neighbour with 
the Rump UK and trade trade and move freely across its border. Now, if she's proceeding on the assumption that an independent Scotland would join the EU eventually, this is just a whole new Northern Ireland, isn't it? it it's it's worse than Northern Ireland. It really is. That's a long, long land border. So the problem with Brexit is that it makes Scottish independence more desirable because mm. the Scots would want rather to be, in, be Europe, in the EU, but it makes it much less attainable because the complications are are very large and after all England is still Scotland's largest trade Mm. partner so you know she's now saying that she will take the next general election as a as a a test of Scottish opinion on independence Um, I have to say Boris is a great the Boris is a loss to to the cause of Scottish (laughs) independence uh, that she she would have done very well had he still been in power well we'll it it is it is noticeable when you look at the pro-independence poll tracker Uh, the Boris Johnson premiership was rather a boom time for Scottish independence indeed it was Um, so so we'll see you know she's this the the, the Nats have been in power a long time in Scotland Mm. now I mean, they are so much the established party of government, but that means that there's quite a record of things with which to reproach them. So, you know, we'll we'll see how clear cut the the election results. And are. it's interesting the way that Sunak is clearly playing it a different way to Johnson He's and to Johnson. Playing Chelsea, much nicer. Yeah. So, I mean, it hasn't been talked about much, but the, the Royal Navy is going to get eight new frigates built mm. in Scotland. You mm-hmm. know, an announcement made you know ten days ago, I think it was. So, you know, those are British jobs, and so you know, I guess in any attempt to kind of have a some kind of referendum campaign, you can go up there and say we wouldn't be building these ships here if we were, you know, if Scotland were independent. But just a final thought on this, Isabel, on the subject of Scotland's domestic political picture. It, it has been extraordinarily transformed over the last 10 or 20 years. It, it is almost a one-party state at this point. Do you think that's ever likely to change? I mean, can Labour and, the, and or the Conservative Party ever make anything like a comeback to what they once were in Scotland? To what they once were, perhaps not. But curiously, because Scotland has a sensible voting system, they're doing, um, they're, they're doing much better in the mm. Scottish Parliament than, than in Scottish seats in the Westminster Parliament because it's a proportional representative uh, system. So the Tories, who struggle to get... Uh, you know, At one point, there were more giant pandas in Scotland than Tory MPs. Um, <laughs> and, the, so, and, the, and the giant pandas would doubtless have done a better job. <laughs> well, indeed. I mean, there were jokes about how they behaved. However, um, the, 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 you know, they, they have a solid representation in the Scottish Parliament, as does Labour, which is not true in terms of Scottish seats in Westminster. So, so they're there. You know, it's a much more realistic picture of Scottish political opinion, actually. And the Greens, you know, have done mm. pretty well. So it's an it's an interesting, you know, it's an in, the, the 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 Scottish Parliament is is kind of an interesting map of Scottish political opinion, and I th- I can't really see either Labour or the Tories becoming a majority party, but they mm. maintain a presence. Well, let's look at the wider world in which it must be beyond strange for any senior US politician to shake the hand of a Filipino president named Ferdinand Marcos. The original was an unregenerate thug and astonishing crook who Washington propped up for decades before being obliged to fly him hastily into exile in Hawaii when the Philippines' long-suffering people finally tipped him out of office in 1986. Sufficient seems to have been forgiven or forgotten, however, that earlier this year the Philippines elected his 
his son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., as president. And President Marcos has just been receiving U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, Bill, first of all, the relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines is one of those relationships which I think it's fair to say is close yet vexed. Um, And it became rather more vexed than close during the presidency of the previous incumbent, uh, Rodrigo Duterte. Uh, Are both sides hoping for something of a renaissance, do you think? Yes, and what's interesting here is that Mr. Marcos and his his vice president is the previous president, Mr. Duterte's daughter, Sarah Duterte. So it, you could see them as being coming from that same political uh, group, but they're clearly trying to turn over a new leaf in relations with the U.S. Mm. Um, and you know we have to, you know, the U.S. is very, you know, the United States would, would say we we never had a colony. The Philippines was an American colony, you know, mm. for, for sixty years, um, and so uh, you know that that fact that that. That relationship is always vexed. There are so many things about life in the Philippines which reflects that American, you know, colonial heritage, and yet Filipino nationalism defines itself against that to, to a large degree. Um, and so uh, there is a kind of there is a sort of left-wing anti-Americanism, but there's also a sort of right-wing nationalism which which has a very uneasy relationship with you know it's very prickly about mm. being being spoken down to um and i suppose marcos is coming out of that tradition but at the same time i think there's a recognition that they they have to deal with the us um and i i think that the, the americans have sort of realized they can cultivate this man and uh, and and bring him back more, more into the fold just to follow that up quickly bill there is a a diplomatic uh, i don't know what you would call it embarrassment uh, something of that sort in that Marcos Ferdinand Jr., that is, is on the hook for $353 million, uh, according to the District Court of Hawaii, over a reparation suit uh, regarding the malfeasances of his father. Now, the US has made it clear, to, for the avoidance of further discomfort, that Marcos wouldn't be arrested as soon as he stepped off the plane on American no, that soil. Would, that would be awkward, wouldn't it? It would be awkward, but but this is a thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the money was nicked. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and it was, I mean, apparently, you know, lots of it in, in suitcases, you know, in cash um and you know for you know for uh, 20 odd years you know marcos basically stripped you know assets stripped the philippines mm. and, and a lot of it um, what's fascinating you know the, about marcos the father was that initially he was welcomed as a man who was basically going to reform the philippines because you had these old families that had this you know, really entrenched power for decades and they ruled the roost and this guy was going to come in and cut them down to size and he would you know introduce a modern democracy and of course i think nothing of the sort happened instead he introduced martial law and ended up with an economic crisis. Basically, as long as you stood up in that period and said, I don't like communists, the Americans were going to forgive a great deal, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, but that was the worry. But I mean, there is still an armed communist movement now, but it's tiny. Um, and so that, you know, that, that isn't part of the, the, the picture anymore. But there is, I mean, the, the, the Philippines is, you know, they... They don't like being talked down to, but they don't like being ignored by the US either. Mm. And there have been a lot of complaints that the Biden administration had ignored them, uh, that when other officials had been to Vietnam and the, in Singapore and other places in the region, no one had been to, to, to the Philippines. Now they've had a vice president. Now, surely, surely you can be happy. This, this proves American love. Well, I mean, it's it's probably, I'm sure, been argued or said many times before, but the, the vice president is who you send when you don't care, but you want the mob on the other <laughs> end uh, to get the impression that you do. Um, and nevertheless, uh, Isabel, 
Is Vice President Harris's choice of Philippine island significant? She visited Palawan, which is a big island. It's not completely out of the way, but this is from where the Philippines patrols the Spratly Islands. Indeed, uh, and one of the many uh, many points of contention is, of course, you know, South China Sea, sinking mm-hmm. fishing boats. Can my fishermen fish in my waters? Uh, what do you mean they're your waters? And, and so on and so forth. Now, you know, she's made... A stirring speech on on defending territorial integrity and sovereignty in the South China Sea, but the fact is that you know over the years the Americans have not managed to stop China militarizing the South China Sea in the sense that they have built up um, a bunch of reefs which were underwater at, at, at high tide and claimed them as islands and installed military installations there. So you know they've they've they have achieved without pretty much without a shot being fired. I mean, the occasional ship rammed. Uh, the military dominance mm. of a key waterway, which is rich in uh, all sorts of mineral resources, but also fish. And this is causing distress. For the Americans, It's kind. they've been trying to calibrate their approach to uh, allies, as it were, or, people, or countries they would like to have as allies in the region, and, and had been fairly clumsy in the sense of saying, you know, you have to choose between China and us, and everybody mm. squirms and looks at the floor and says, no, I don't think so. So I think they they're modulating that a little bit because it was so counterproductive. Um, but I think that countries for countries like the Philippines, they really want the United States in the region because otherwise there is no hedge against China. But they don't want to be signed up as full-scale allies and therefore the first in line for the first shots to be fired in whatever war it is. Uh, just further on this, Isabel, we did talk recently on one of these shows about the absolutely spectacular fit that Beijing threw about uh, standing outgoing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan. On that scale, where would Beijing's vexedness about the vice president visiting Philippines be? I mean, I grant that China does not, at least not yet, yet. uh, (laughs) claim claim Philippines uh, uh, for its own. Um, And obviously, the Philippines is a, well, let's call it an ally of longstanding of the United States. If the vice president of the United States can't go there, where can she, etc.? But would would, would China be, is is China likely to be actually or theatrically upset by this? Actually, even the theatrical upset was pretty mild. You know, the most wolf warrior foreign ministry spokesman, Zhao Lijian, said essentially, of course, um, you know, that we we don't object to to Philippines and the United States meeting as long as those meetings are not uh, detrimental to the interests of other countries that's as far that's as bad as it got and that's pretty mild so no it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't measure on the scale but just finally on this bill obviously what what is going on here is an attempt by both washington and manila to try and revive the relationship somewhat after the duterte interregnum um vice president harris's visit was attended by a few small protests possibly not big enough to be actually indicative of anything terribly much but is there much given the history, actual anti-American feeling in the Philippines now? And if so, is it serious? There is, and in in, in some places. Um, I mean, there's, there's nothing like uh, generating uh, anti-American feeling than having an American military base in your country. Mm. Um, and for a long time, that was the issue about the behaviour of American troops. But they've all those bases have been closed down, although the Americans are now talking about having a sort of rotating presence. That was one of the things that was on the table during, during this. Um, there is a kind of 
you know, a left wing, um, you know, against all imperialists, you know, kind of, you know, sort of carte blanche, you know, carte blanche approach. Um, and there is this sort of, you know, this 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 uh, dislike about the legacy of, you know, from the from the Marcos and the, and the martial law period, is there? But as, as Isabel was saying, you know, there is, you know, there is a concern about China. China is just so huge, and it's sort of, you know, it, you know, it. it in diplomatic terms, it kind of blunders around, kind of annoying people. And there's <laughs> in so many ways, China's behavior is counterproductive um, and to its, uh, its wider interests. You know, they're kind of getting, you know, all this effort to sort of, you know, to dominate the South China Sea. Well, if they want the fish and the oil, it would be much cheaper just to buy it on the open market, frankly, you know, rather than trying to say it's ours and drawing a line around it. You know, but they, you know, so therefore the Philippines, you know, moves towards the US as a, as a sort of, as a bit of ballast, you know, to avoid being, you know, sucked into China's orbit so much. And so you know they they want this, and that's something that these these Chinese spokespeople can't admit that these smaller you know countries in the middle have agency and have ch- and, and choose. It's not just you know the, the great U.S. puppet master kind of stirring up the sea from you know from far away. Actually, these countries do you know want to play the game. They want the U.S. and China to be involved, and they want to you know make the uh, the arbitrage and the, and the choices and the brokering between them. Bill Hayton and Isabel Hilton, thank you very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, it is hard enough to make a mark in the shadow of accomplished parents, harder still when you have inherited the name of one of them. And another thing entirely doubtless when they are two of the most famous individuals who have ever lived up to that point. Such was the inheritance of Cleopatra Cellini, daughter of the obvious and Mark Anthony, yet a remarkable figure in her own right. Her story is told in a new biography by Jane Draycott, It's called Cleopatra's Daughter, Egyptian Princess, Roman Prisoner, African Queen. I spoke to Jane earlier and began by asking whether Cleopatra Cellini's relative unfussy competence may be another reason she has been so disregarded. I think so. I think there there are a couple of things to unpack as well that, that I think are relevant here. And the first is that, generally speaking, Cleopatra as a mother doesn't get a whole lot of attention. The, the, the emphasis is, is very much on her sexuality and her sex life and her as a sort of doomed romantic heroine rather than a mother of four. And we are also dealing with a time and a place where the people who were writing the history, they were Romans for starters, they were Roman men, and Roman men were not interested in women at all. Women did not have an official role in the Roman political system. They were expected to be supportive mothers, wives and daughters, and potentially sisters as well, but they were expected to keep out of the high profile uh, moving and shaking that was going on with politics, with the military, that there wasn't a place for them there. So when Roman writers write about women, it's because the women are doing something awful and completely not what they should be doing. So that's why they spend so much time writing about Cleopatra, or some of the Roman empresses who get written about because they were adulterous, they were sticking their noses into politics when they shouldn't have done. And so, yes, I think uh, Cleopatra Cellini there, in doing what she was intended to do and doing it well and doing it, well, not, not necessarily unobtrusively, uh, at the time that she was yeah. living as, as a princess and as a queen and as somebody who was very important in her own sort of sphere of influence she she wasn't uh, necessarily quiet but as far as the roman writers back in rome were concerned 
she wasn't doing anything that would draw their negative attention and lead them to want to write about her as a problem. So all that being the case, how much documentary evidence is there of her and her life and her accomplishments? How much do we know for sure? We know... A fair bit, for sure. She gets referenced generally in relation to her parents Mm. and to her husband. And so as far as some ancient figures are concerned, I suppose you could say we don't know very much about her at all. But as far as others, particularly women like her, women who were client queens of kingdoms that were adjacent to the Roman Empire and had a lot to do with Rome, we know loads more about her than we know about, well, any of her peers at the time and later later queens such as uh, Berenike, as uh, Zenobia. So she, we know more about her than we know about Boudicca, for example. And, and think of how much attention gets mm. paid to Boudicca, um, not just in Britain, but, but generally as, as far as uh, Roman political and military history is concerned. Your book also tries to create a picture of the kind of society she would have lived in, the kind of life she might have led. But when you're assembling the backdrop, uh, if you will, how careful do you need to be about testing and fact-checking stuff about what one person's life 2,000 years ago might have been like? I think you do need to be incredibly careful. It's very easy to go down speculative rabbit holes. Mm. And especially when you're dealing with people whose stories could quite easily lend themselves to historical fiction. There have been a couple of historical fiction novels in the last decade or so that have come out about Cleopatra Cellini. But I think it's important to remember that as far as other very famous household names are concerned, so I mentioned Julius Caesar earlier, for example, There's lots we don't know about Julius Caesar. We know lots about very specific periods of his life. We don't know anything about his childhood, for example. And we don't know about what his his daily life was like, what he liked to eat for breakfast and things like that. So we do, when we're dealing with figures in classical antiquity, there is a lot we don't know. But the stuff that we do know is also very, very selective. And the information that we might want to have is not necessarily going to come from the literature. It's going to come from, for example, archaeology or Mm. epigraphy. And this is what I've tried to do in the book is is look, yes, at the ancient sources and the the histories that were written at the time or shortly after, but use archaeology as well, because these are the remnants of the daily lives of people, both socially elite people, like members of the imperial family, the royal family, but also ordinary people as well who were, who were going about their business and, and were watching all of this unfold and who had uh, interests in the important people and the, the uh, imperial family and the royal family, the way that today we have interest in the royal family. We don't know them personally. We have no idea what they're doing every minute of the day, but we, we, can, we can perhaps uh, we can speculate about it. Well, on that subject, did did it strike you that there are any contemporary resonances with Cleopatra Cellini and the modern day, perhaps in our eternal view of monarchy? I mean, you do draw a couple of explicit uh, comparisons when you when you write about her and her brothers uh, being paraded in Octavian's great triumph in Rome. Uh, you rather liken this to William and Harry having to plod behind their mother's coffin back when the Princess of Wales died. But do you think the 
basically, even over that span of 2,000 years, the role of royalty in many respects has pretty much stayed the same? In some cases, yes. As far as some things are concerned, ancient royals had a lot more direct power than our modern royals have. But at the same time, they were still prone to being talked about, uh, demonised, romanticised, uh, worshipped quite quite literally sometimes as as gods. So I think that there are some quite clear parallels. I mean, we 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 already talked a little bit about uh, about women uh, and what was expected of them in in uh, Roman politics. But I think today as well, women who get the job done, who turn up and keep their heads down and get the job done, do not get the attention that the women who turn up and well, make, make a fuss uh, about things. The attention goes, the media attention goes to the personalities, the people who are making waves, causing trouble, good at publicising themselves, not necessarily on the ones who are doing the, the day-in, day-out work of politics, work of administration. That was Jane Draycott, author of Cleopatra's Daughter, which is available now and is tremendous. And a reminder that you can also hear Jane playing an ancient Greek royal correspondent in the recent historical episode of Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk, reporting on the fall of Troy. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Isabel Hilton and Bill Hayton. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. Playing us out, the inimitable, though many tried... Wilco Johnson, who has died aged 75. Johnson was best known as lead guitarist with Dr Feelgood, who started out as orthodox pub rockers in 1970s Essex and whose frantic nervy boogie somehow wound up being the star that guided British punk rock to post-punk. Echoes of Wilco Johnson's distinctive choppy punchy playing can be heard all points public image limited to talking heads to you 2 to blur. Johnson later assembled a fine solo catalogue, acted in Game of Thrones and Bray and brilliantly narrated in public an earlier health scare. This is Dr Feelgood with She Does It Right. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 